All right, well, let's, uh, as we begin, you know, we're going through a series called Into the Wilderness, and in light of, um, it's a good series for us in this period of time of our church, as, as a lot of you know, and as Jeff mentioned earlier, we're going through a season of transition, uh, and so this sermon series has been for us a reflection, uh, not just of what some of us might be going through in our individual lives, uh, difficult circumstances, um, periods of time where we're confused about what's going on. But it's also been a really good series for us to reflect on as a church, knowing that this is not going to be our home uh, for much longer, uh, knowing that we're not entirely sure where we're going to call home uh, in the future, um, but in the midst of it, clinging, hoping, and trusting uh, that our God will continue with us. And so we're going to be continuing in that uh, sermon series today. Let me take a moment to pray and uh, we'll be looking at Exodus 17 here. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you and your word this morning, as we reflect and think upon that uh, which you have shown us, upon the, the things that you did with the Israelites in the wilderness, Father, may we um, take a moment to even think upon ourselves and to think upon the way in which you interact with us, your long-suffering and your patience with your people uh, when we are plunged into difficult circumstances. Uh, and may we also, more importantly, not just think upon ourselves, but think upon you and upon the great work that you do, the way in which your promise remains true to your people, and the salvation is always at hand uh, for those who look to you by faith in Christ alone. And so uh, may we be assured of that this morning as we come to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> In the aftermath of World War II, German pastor Gunter Rutenborn wrote a play in light of everything that happened because of this world war. And the play was called The Sign of Jonah. And in it, the characters in the play were trying to answer the, the chief question, who is to blame for what happened? Who is to blame for this gigantic war that tore apart countries and killed lots of people? And in the play, uh, various characters would come up and explain why they weren't to blame. The soldiers would say, you know, I just followed orders. I did what I was told. The industrialist said, I was just told to make weapons. I turn metal into weaponry and that's it. I don't fire them. I don't shoot them. And the citizens themselves would say, look, I didn't get involved. I wasn't involved. I didn't take up a gun. I didn't shoot anyone. And over the course of this play, as it goes on, eventually each of these different parties, whether it was soldiers or industrialists or citizens, eventually realize they're all giving similar excuses and that ultimately they are all to blame. And so they band together, and they eventually decide, look, we don't want to blame ourselves. We're going to place ultimate blame elsewhere. And so they say, yes, yes, we are to blame. Yes, uh, we are to blame, but we are not the most to blame. The real blame belongs much higher. God is to blame. God must go on trial for the crimes of World War II. Now imagine the thought of that, the audacity of, the, of that. And of course, the play is trying to get to that idea of putting God on trial. You know, 
we just went through a really rough period of our nation where the president was being impeached and a large portion of our country found it unfathomable we're saying how how could this president be how could any president be put uh, on trial how dare anyone do that the president has ultimate power or has a lot of power there's no reason why a president should be put on trial and regardless of your politics whether you think that's true or not if that's how some people think about the president how much more should we think about putting god on trial how foolish it is to take the creator of all things the provider of all things the upholder of all the universe of all life and to call him to account and to demand from him justice as if we have power over him yet this morning this is exactly what happens in our passage this is what the Israelites, Israelites do this is what it looks like when grumbling and when complaint turns into outright rebellion and there's much of that as we see which perhaps is working in our own hearts and more importantly through all this and perhaps the best news of all we're going to see how God responds to that how does God respond to spiritual rebellion how does God respond when his people turn away from him so we're looking at three things first is rebellious accusations secondly a rebellious trial and then lastly a rebellious judgment accusations a trial and then a judgment <clears throat> as we've kind of been wandering through Israel uh, through Exodus with the Israelites what we've seen is the Israelites have constantly complained since they've left Egypt um, crossed the Red Sea and gone until the wilderness right time and time again they complain and they grumble we know that about their personality in a lot of ways uh, back in chapter 14 Israel was being chased by Egypt uh, Pharaoh was trying to hunt them down and keep them from running away and they as they stood uh, scrunched up between an, uh, the army that was about to overtake them and a Red Sea in which they would have drowned if they tried to cross they cry out and say you know it'd probably be better if we just died right and then you go to chapter 16 after they've crossed the Red Sea because it's been split apart by God himself they cross the Red Sea you get to chapter 16 which Jeff preached on last week and Israel it has no food and they have no food and they're hungry and they say to Moses Moses you know you might have messed up here because we're about to die of hunger and then we get to today and you can see here how there's an increasing intensity and antagonism with these complaints you go from like man it's probably better if we die because I'm I'm we're in trouble to Moses man you kind of screwed up here to today in this chapter where they say Moses you are trying to kill us you are actively trying to kill us you see that how it's there's this progression here and they go from grumbling to what they term here testing and quarreling with Moses you know we've all murmured under our breath I am an incredible murmurer my wife is my wife always hears something and she goes what and I just be like oh no nothing nothing I, I can be incredibly passive-aggressive if I need to be 
So it's one thing to murmur under your breath and just mumble to yourself and, you know, lodge a tiny complaint that nobody hears, except God, of course. But it's another thing to, to have outright disagreement and argument, which we understand quarreling to be, right? And we saw how last week, and Jeff talked about how last week, you know, grumbling by these Israelites wasn't just complaint toward Moses, right? It was a complaint toward God. It was a crying out. They, they directed it at Moses, but they were truly directing it to God. Moses is, uh, is God's representative, God's chosen person to lead the people. And so if you're complaining to Moses, you're complaining to God because God had given him the authority. It wasn't an authority he took for himself. And so if they were grumbling with Moses, and they, in essence, were also grumbling with God, then now as they quarrel with Moses, as they accuse Moses, guess who they're truly accusing and quarreling with now, right? They're fighting with God. They're testing God. They're arguing and complaining outright to God. And so in verse 2, when Israel says, we're, we're thirsty, we need water to drink, they're demanding water. They're not just demanding it from Moses. Who are they demanding it from? God, right? They're demanding water from God. And think about that again. It's one thing for a child to demand from a parent. It's another thing for a person to demand from God, right? And they're demanding, saying, God, you need to do this as if I have authority over you because this is what I deserve. This is what I demand from you, right? There's no asking here in this passage. There's no praying. There's no hoping or trusting or nothing about wait on the Lord. He'll give us something to drink, but it's demanding. It's insisting. It's trying to control. And so you could see their posture has utterly changed, right? There's no waiting or wishing. This is a God, I want this and I want it now. Verse 3, they don't just demand water to drink, but they begin questioning leadership, right? They question the leadership of Moses. It says, you know, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Why would you do this, Moses? And yet again, they're not questioning Moses, ultimately. They're questioning God. They're questioning God's leadership. God, you promised to protect us. What's going on here? God, you sent us out here to get destroyed? What kind of promise keeper are you? What kind of God does that to his people? And so they're not just demanding, but they're also questioning, right? And then you go on to the end of this, chat, uh, this, this passage, verse 7. Israel goes so far as to ask perhaps the most threatening accusation of all. Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? I mean, are you with me or are you against me? Are you all in or are you all out? That's a serious question, is it not? Husbands don't go up to their wives and go, hey, are you in this marriage or are you not in this marriage? Right? Unless something serious has happened. And in that same way, when Israel asks that question, they are saying, God, are you here or not? Are you with us or not? Are we your people or not? Have you abandoned us? 
And so for them, a lack of blessing, a lack of attention, a lack of things that they feel like they're receiving or that they control meant for them a lack of any presence whatsoever from God. I mean, talk about lobbing grenades at God and accusing him of all these different things. These are all the accusations they are placing before God. And so you see this evolution here, if we're able to go back through what we've gone through in our chapters in Exodus. You go from Israel's grumbles to complaints, and then they begin to have doubts, and now all outright accusation and rebellion. Right? They wonder about their circumstances, and they now question God, and now they want to rebel. So what does this rebellion look like? What does it look like when people start throwing accusations at God? What does it look like when in your own heart? Because we've all had doubts, and we've all had questions, but what does it look like when you, in your heart, begin to actually become antagonistic toward God or to quarrel against God. And for, I ask that question knowing that for a lot of us here, including myself, we've already been in that place, have we not? We've already kind of done some of that wrestling, and we know it's ugly. And we know it gets very hard and messy. So what does it look like when that happens? And we see that in this trial that happens because what happens here is rather than the israelites realizing like look we are in the wilderness because we are being tested by god he is going to bring us through so he might make us a new and greater people and, and do mighty works and powers instead of seeing this period as a testing of them being tested by god they now decide we are here to test god we're going to be the ones who test god we're going to be the ones who put him on trial and so they take him to court. And so this rebellious trial happens, and we're going to see all the elements of what I mean by that. You know, in Scripture, quarreling, um, as it's used here, isn't really the same as how we use it in our everyday language. You know, I might quarrel uh, about, with my wife about what chores we need to do, right? Like, I did the dishes yesterday, you need to do them today. I might quarrel about who gets control over, uh, who gets control over the TV, right? It's my day to pick the show, right? Um, and that, that can lead to quarreling, can lead to bickering. But in the Old Testament, whenever quarreling appears, it almost always carries a stronger definition. And it carries a judicial meaning. Because quarreling in Scripture often means bringing up a charge and entering into a lawsuit against someone. You know, uh, throughout the prophets, the prophets uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, they talk about God having a quarrel with Israel. And in every situation there, the language goes into God bringing up a charge against Israel for failing to uphold the promises that they've made to God, the covenant that they've made with God. And so every time quarrel appears in Scripture in the Old Testament, it always carries a judicial meaning. And so when they use it here, there's also a judicial sense to this. So it's not just we're trying to fight with God. It's we are bringing a lawsuit against God. And so Israel takes God to court by quarreling with him, and they charge him. 
they accuse him with a failure to uphold his covenant promise, right? God, when he uh, first made his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, he says, Abraham, I'm going to take you out of this land. I'm going to make you a father of many nations, descendants like the stars in the sky. You're going to be in a land flowing with milk and honey, which sounds amazing unless you're lactose intolerant like me. But it sounds amazing, right? And yet, for Israel, they're wandering this wilderness, and they're saying, God, you promised the land of milk and honey. We've got nothing to drink and eat. God, you've promised to make us a great nation, and we are wandering in a desert with no boundaries, no homes, and being oppressed by actual nations all around us. And so, God, we're taking you to court for failing to uphold your promise to us. The contract that we had made back that you made with Abraham, you have not fulfilled your end of the bargain. And so we are suing you for that. Right? They charge, they charge God with treason for breaking his promise. And it even says in the passage, right? They get ready to what? Moses says, they're getting ready to stone me. Now, stoning wasn't just like a fun activity they did back in the day. It was capital punishment. It's a form of judgment, right? And so as they say, like, we are accusing you of failure to hold this up, we are going to take your representative, the one that you have chosen to lead us, and we are about to execute punishment upon him by stoning him, right? All of this paints a picture of a kangaroo court going out of control. Now, if we could take a moment and just take a step back, because one of the big temptations I know for me when I read the Bible is to forget the humanity of the people that are in it. Because in these moments, it's so easy to just for me to be like, Israel, you guys are idiots, man. Like, did you not see that sea split in half and you walk through on the bottom of it? Like, did you not follow a, a pillar of smoke? Like, where does that just appear? And, a, and a, a fire at night that just kind of walked with you and before you? Did you not see, like, bread just kind of come up from the ground, fall from the heavens? Did you not see all that quail that just suddenly, like, bok, 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 all around the place? Right? This stuff doesn't just happen. How do you not remember these things? How do you forget all this? And it's, it's sometimes ridiculous for me to think about these things. And yet, I have to remember, too, how quick I am to forget God's promises and the great things that he does. Because the reality is, is, you know, I can easily say and point, God is a provider. He has promised he will clothe the lilies in the field with all the beauty. And the birds in the air have a shelter. They have nests to live in. And they will always have food to eat. That's easy for me to say because I do have a home to go to. And I've got leftovers sitting in my fridge. Tell that to a homeless person and see how easy it is for them to actually take hold of those promises. Because when you're in the midst of those type of circumstances and difficulties, when you are walking in the wilderness, it's hard to believe those things. It's hard to believe promises. And so when you're told you're going to be in a land flowing with milk and honey and all you taste is dust and sand and your throat is parched, 
it's hard to believe those promises. And it's hard to believe that, that what God promised might come true. And so there's a, there's a part of me that, if anything, I know in my knee-jerk would be, these guys are idiots, but really, if anything, there's an empathy for me in, in thinking about this, and I hope it is for you too. We're not that far different in kind of the spiritual amnesia that's going on here. Look, the reality is, I have, I have confidence in who God has made our church to be. I have confidence in Grace Alameda and the calling that we have to be a church here. But in the process of the building search, in the process of, of trying to find a new place to worship, there's been two things that I've really been reflecting on and really been challenged by. One is this. When I, I, this whole process has really opened my eyes to see how much of a spiritual wilderness we really are here in the Bay Area. Because the reality is, it is the, the reality of how expensive it is to live here, how expensive it is to find space and even rent it, how, how much antagonism schools and businesses have against religious organizations, how much our culture has difficulty with religious organizations. And frankly, how some churches, even in our area, are more concerned about maintaining traditions or the, maintaining the real estate than partnering for the sake of the gospel. And that's difficult. And that's the wilderness we are in. And there are so many obstacles that prove how difficult it is for a church to set roots right here in Alameda or right here in the East Bay that it's honestly at times, as we've gone through this process, and Jeff and I have run into a lot of obstacles and barriers, it's made at least me wonder whether God actually wants us here or not. Whether we actually belong. I, I don't voice that, obviously, very often. But in my heart of hearts, I've thought that. That maybe we're not right for this place. Maybe we're not supposed to be here. And I've begun to question at times, God, are you with this church? God, have you left us? Has your glory gone out of the temple? And it's made me really, again, as I work through what the Israelites are working through here, it's really made my heart be challenged and realize we're not that far off from what they're going through. The second thing that I've been challenged by is this. I can say I have full confidence in Grace Alameda being here. And I can say, I, oh God, in, in the better times when we had uh, assurances that we'd have a place to worship, man, we are here for the city. We love the city. We belong here. God has put us here. And realizing that my convictions when I say those things very often have more to do with me than they do with God. Where a lot of that is really about my accomplishments or what I can do. How I can, how, man, if only people heard me preach, this city would be transformed. Right? If only people ate the dinners that my wife cooked in our house, trust me, they will come to Jesus. Right? She's amazing. But the, but the reality is, is 
if it's so much about me, then I'm saying God will work in this church, in this city, not on his terms, but on mine then. And so much of my attitude is so wrong in that then, right? That so much of God building his church on the island in the East Bay is about how it works for my terms and my timeline. And yet, that is not how our God works. And that's why when he changes his plan, when he takes away a place we worship, I go from grumbling to complaining to quarreling and to rebellion. Why it's so easy for my heart to make that transition. And the reality is I know that we all make that spiritual descent at some point, right? With the circumstances you find in life. When things don't work out the way you want, they don't work on your terms and your timeline because God is doing it a different way. How quick and easy you go from grumbling to rebellion. And maybe you're in that right now. Maybe you're in a place like that right now. Where being here, if anything, is an act of rebellion. You are struggling so hard to even sit there right now. And I tell you that as someone who's been in that place. Who's had to worship with that in my own heart at times. But the good news for any of you who are going through that right now, the good news for me as I've had to process and work through this, and the good news for all of us, is what we see in how God responds to our rebellion. How God responds when we get to that low place. You know, in our passage, God says, you want to go to court? You want to bring a charge against me? Let's go to court. I want a trial. And so he tells Moses in our passage, get the elders. Bring the elders. And the reason why is the elders in that period of time were, in essence, jurors of their day. The elders would be the ones who would uh, adjudicate any disagreements within the community. So if you had a problem with your neighbor, you would take it to the elders, and they would listen to the cases and address it. And so God says, bring the jury. And then God says, Moses, get your staff. That's kind of a weird one, right? What does a staff have to do with anything? Again, staffs and rods in the Old Testament represented authority. But more importantly, the staff that Moses is called to bring is the staff that he hits the Nile with, that turns the Nile from water into blood when they were leaving and escaping Egypt. And that act of turning water into blood was a sign of judgment over Pharaoh, saying because of your uh, uh, consistent um, rebellion against me and against letting my people go. Here is your sign of judgment. And he strikes with the rod, the Nile, it turns into blood. And so God says, bring that same staff, that staff of judgment, bring it on up. Take the elders, bring that staff, because there's going to be some judgment that goes down right now. And then lastly, says, he says, take, your, take the elders, take the staff, we're going to the rock of Horeb. What does that have to do with anything? The rock of Horeb was where the burning bush happened. The rock of Horeb was the first place where Moses met with God's actual presence. And God calls Moses 
into the wilderness and says, lead my people. It's the first time where Moses experiences a tangible presence of God. And so that means, guess who will show up to this trial? Come meet me at Horeb. Why? Because God says, I'm there already. I'm waiting for you. So bring your jury. Bring your staff of judgment. Because I'm waiting. And we're going to have a trial right now. And I'm going to deliver a judgment right now. And the amazing thing is the judgment that is about to be rendered as God builds up this court case. The judgment that is to be rendered is one that nobody expects. You know, as a kid, I took Taekwondo. I know it's hard to believe, but you've never seen me fight, so maybe that's why. (laughs) But when you do Taekwondo, um, one of the things you do a lot in Taekwondo is you break a lot of wooden boards. It's like a thing that uh, you have to do to either move up in your belt levels and whatnot. And I remember as a kid, when I first had to break my very first board, it was scary. And I was a little tentative, right? So the instructor holds out the board for you like this, and he's saying, you know, we're going to teach you how to break boards today. So punch the board, right? And as a kid, for the first time, you're like, that's going to hurt my hand, right? Like, if I punch that, it's going to hurt me. And so the first time I did it, I was just like a boop. You know, obviously that board didn't break at all. And nothing happened to my hand. But just really shy about that. So, and I, I had a pretty, I remember his name, Mr. Tabuchi. Oh, he was an intense instructor. Just an intense guy. So Mr. Tabuchi takes the board. He sees me do it the first time and just pretty much tickle the wood. Puts the board down. And he comes up. And he's just straight up like this. He says, punch me in the stomach. And I'm like, whoa, 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 can we go back to the board at least, right? So the instructor comes up, he says, punch me in the stomach. And I'm like, I can, a board is an inanimate object. I'm pretty sure I'm not supposed to punch people, not in this class. Um, he's like, punch me in the stomach. So I'm a kid, and I go up and I give him a nice little massage on the stomach pretty much. I'm not going to punch my instructor in the stomach. Who does that? I'm afraid he's going to just be like, right? But so I, I give him a little punch, and he, he, again, he's just staring at me. Again, super intense. He's like, no, punch me in the stomach. Punch me harder. And so eventually I end up, like, you know, coming back, do the form correctly, give him a nice little punch. And all of it just felt super wrong. I mean, terrible. Like, what am I doing? Who is this guy, right? Because there's something inherently wrong about hitting your instructor in class. You're not supposed to do that. Now, of course, he was totally fine because, you know, I'm a weak little kid and he's like this karate black belt master, taekwondo master, right? But it felt super wrong. In that same way, Moses is commanded to do something just like that, right? In our passage, Moses is told by God to do something like that. Verse 6, God goes up on the rock. He says, God says, I will stand before you on the rock. I will stand before you, before the rock, meaning I will stand there like I'm on trial, like I'm a defendant. I will stand before all the people before the rock. And it also says that he's standing on the rock, meaning he is there waiting, right, some sort of verdict. And so God stands before and upon the rock, 
And remembering that throughout Old Testament language, you read it in the Psalms and the prophets, God often is referred to as a rock, right? The rock of Israel, the one who, and, and that rock is a rock of salvation, an immovable foundation of redemption for God's people. But as God stands before it on the rock, he tells Moses, in essence, punch me in the stomach, Right, he says, Moses, strike me with the staff. Strike the rock with the staff. Now, Moses isn't stupid. He knows that God is there because God has told him, I will be before you and on this rock. And so Moses is told by God, strike the rock with the staff. Remember, this is the staff that, the staff of judgment. And so Moses raises up and brings down the rod of judgment, not just on this rock, but on God. And in this moment, when Israel should be struck dead because of their rebellion against them, because of their constant unfaithfulness, because of the constant quarreling and testing of the Lord who brought them out of slavery, who provided for them salvation from the Egyptians, who fed them with quail and bread from out of nowhere, the God who should have authority over their life and their death, he stands in their place and he receives the blow of judgment for them. He takes the punishment in Israel's place in light of all the rebellion. And as the rock is struck, water flows out, pours down the mountain, and the people have water to drink. They are saved from their thirst. And being struck by the judgment of death, God brings forth life for his people in the midst of their complaints. Fast forward 1,600 years later. The Apostle Paul He's writing to a little church in Corinth. This little church is trying to survive in a pagan world, totally dead set against them, totally anti-Christian, totally anti-Jesus, a place that they call, people would look upon this little church gathering and say, these people are fools. They're wasting their time. And they're just trying to survive. And just make it. And Paul is trying to lovingly, pastorally encourage them and tell them to remain faithful, to stay the course, to remind them that God is with them while they are in the wilderness of, of, of Corinth and of the Roman Empire. And he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, this, and it'll be up on the screen. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. The rock that Moses struck was Christ. 
God's promise to Abraham to save his people, to be with his people, to forever protect and love his people, remain true on that day in Massa and Meribah for the Israelites. And it remained true, as Paul wrote his letter to this tiny church in Corinth, and it remains true for Grace Alameda today. Our rock is Christ. For Jesus was struck for our sake, receiving as our substitute the judgment each and every one of us deserved. We should be standing on that rock. We should be hanging from that cross. And yet, God in His grace and in His love and mercy had Christ stand there for us so that He would receive the rod of judgment, so that He would be crucified for us. And as that rock was struck, water would pour out from it as Jesus received that blow. And as Jesus was thrust into his side by a sword, out from that wound would pour blood and water for salvation for his people. And in his ministry, there's a reason why Jesus would stand before the people and his disciples and say, I am your living water. Drink from me and you will never thirst again. John 7, 37, 38. Jesus stood up, cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. God is our, Christ is our eternal fountain from which we may drink. And the earliest hint of that that we see is right here in Massa and Meribah as the Israelites rebelled, rebelled against God. And in that same rebellion that we reenact day by day because of our sinfulness, because of the way in which we wanted things on our terms and our timeline, the good news of the gospel is that Christ has gone to the cross and living water pours forth for you in your brokenness and sinfulness, in your failure, in your anger, in your rebellion. God doesn't meet you with the rod of judgment for he has put that upon Christ and instead he offers you living water. Living water of salvation, forgiveness of sins, and redemption in Jesus Christ by faith alone. And this is a picture not just of what's happened then, it's a picture of what will happen for all eternity. In Revelation 22.1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Even in heaven, Jesus is still our living water. For the river of life flows from his throne. And we will continue to drink of his glory. Grace Alameda exists in a spiritual wilderness of the Bay Area. No different than Israel in the desert, no different than the Church of Corinth in the Roman world. And the reality is many things will not go our way. Building searches will not always go our way. The cost of living will not go our way. A, a positive view of spirituality and the church will not go away. But our rock 
is Christ and Christ alone. And in him, God will continue to keep his promise that he will always be our God and we will always be his people, that he will always be present to protect and to provide for his church. And individually, that also remains true for you as well. Going back to that play written by the German pastor, Guten Rutenborn, The Sign of Jonah, the people put God on trial. They've placed the blame on God. The one to most to blame is God. He should be put on trial. And so they accuse God, they prosecute God, they convict him, and then they sentence God. And they deliver a judgment. They place a punishment upon him, and it says this. The play reads this. For his punishment, God must become a human being, a wanderer on earth, deprived of his rights, homeless, hungry, thirsty. He himself shall die and lose a son and suffer the agonies of fatherhood. And when at last he dies, he shall be disgraced and ridiculed. And that is exactly the punishment Jesus Christ received for us. That is exactly the judgment that was rendered unto Christ for our sake. You know, I know many of you are tempted right now because of whatever is going on to quarrel and to complain with God. Many of you are probably struggling right now, wondering if God is with you at all. Let me encourage you this morning by faith. Let Christ be your rock. You don't need to make excuses. You don't need to be in control. You don't need to demand that God owes you something. You don't need to rebel to get your way. But give yourself to Christ. Give yourself to the rock. Give yourself to the living water and find that you will never thirst again. Let's pray. Father, as we as we are a people who because of our sinfulness are so prone to rebellion because of our brokenness and 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 the world of sin that we're in we're prone to doubt and because of our desire to have things our way we're prone to quarrel father forgive us father help us to see our inward ways and the manner in which we want to be about us rather than you and Father, more importantly, help us to see the great glory of grace, the great news of the gospel, and the great work of Jesus Christ for our sake as he gave his life, as he stood upon the rock that he himself is the rock, that received the judgment for us, that died the death we deserve, but through that would pour out living waters of salvation that we may drink from today so that we may never thirst. Father, we thank you that you hold that out for us today, that it is freely offered to us, and that, Lord, we need not fear extinction or destruction, but we can freely and gratefully and willingly embrace the grace given to us in Jesus Christ as it's offered to us by faith. And we thank you, Lord, for that. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.